The system for declaring disasters and getting federal help dates back a century. And for the past 25 years, disaster declarations have been on the rise. But according to my next guest, politics, skill at the state and local level, and inconsistency in how federal agencies decide things means the whole system needs reform. Here with more, Brookings Metro fellow Carlos Martin. Dr. Martin, good to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Tom. And what made you look at, of all things, of all the arcana in the federal government, mm-hmm. the the way that FEMA declares disasters and then what happens in the aftermath? There, I mean, there are a wide group of scholars and practitioners who have been talking about reforming the way we deal with disasters and emergencies in this country for some time. So I shouldn't say that I'm the first. I think what concerns us right now is that the frequency and the severity of these disasters are happen, are increasing across the board. And we all know this just from this summer. Um, we know this from personal experience, uh, particularly due to climate change's effects, as well as the fact that we have a large population that lives in places that are urbanized and have a denser. And so there's more likely to be um, increased uh, numbers of damages after these. So thinking about how we could do this better has always uh, been at top of mind. All right. And what is wrong with how FEMA does it now? I mean, we're concentrating basically on FEMA, which is wasn't always the first responder of the federal government, but I guess after Katrina, it kind of became a first responder. Right. It's been that since after Carter. President Carter actually started FEMA, um, taking a patchwork of programs and recovery assistance from a wide range of different federal agencies and putting them into one place. And then, of course, after 9-11, when George Bush uh, created the Department of Homeland Security, he put FEMA under uh, Department of Homeland Security. So we could talk a little bit more, and we actually have an ongoing blog series. Uh, your listeners can um, see that we'll be talking about that in the next year, in the next blog that's coming out this week. But this one, we talked about just how do we decide what is a disaster? And in this case, um, we wanted to talk about transparency. We wanted to talk about consistent practices in determining damages, and we wanted to talk about who, um, what is value, and what a- ends up becoming part of a disaster declaration. So the president actually with basically FEMA assistance determines whether a governor's request for a local disaster is worthy of a presidential declaration. Why is this important? It's important because all sorts of federal dollars start flowing after a president makes that declaration. So it's a very critical decision. It also only triggers certain programs in FEMA and in Small Business Administration, a few other agencies, but not the whole slew of disaster recovery funds that could be happening. That tends to require congressional action. So being a little more consistent will allow a state and local government to make good decisions after they've suffered these things, but it also allows an individual to be able to know what they can get, what they can access right at the beginning, which is the most critical time for any household, any family that's gone through any kind of disaster. So one of the recommendations that we have is what damage assessments are used to make sure that those are as consistently applied as possible. Part of the challenge with evolving technologies is that FEMA um, experiments almost every single time with a new technique of measuring uh, damages. And so that's helpful, and we definitely encourage new technologies that are more accurate, but there's no real comparative case, so we don't know exactly how things are being assessed. And there's an even bigger issue that seems to permeate what your recommendations are, and that is they don't take into account the vulnerability of the particular area affected, because often just in the TV footage, you see people in poor communities get wiped out. This place has never been flooded. Now there's not a house left or a tornado flattens a whole area. And they don't often look like the wealthy that this affects. 
And that's, that's one of your key theses, I believe, fair to say. Yes, very much so. And so, and those same populations are more likely to spiral uh, financially after the effects for a longer term and for with much more negative consequences. And so part of our, our thinking was, well, what if we actually made the declaration, not just the total damage assessment, because that means high value damage is valued more than vulnerable populations. So having a disproportionate weighting of, okay, the majority of the people who were affected live in communities that are low income, that have been marginalized for other ways, including historic racism, or have uh, suffered any kind of other particular damages that should give this a little boost when the president is making that declaration, and that allows all sorts, that triggers all sorts of other assistance down the road. We're speaking with Dr. Carlos Martin. He's a fellow at Brookings Metro. And so would it also be fair to say that in many cases where the damage occurs to, say, wealthier areas, they might have insurance resources and so on that may not be the same level of coverage available to people with lesser resources. And also the, and I think this is something that's kind of in your wheelhouse historically, the quality of construction and housing in the poor areas sometimes is just not there to withstand what wealthier areas can withstand. That's exactly right. Both of those conditions hold true, Tom. Um, and so the thinking is, well, let's make the decision-making process focus on those vulnerable populations rather than making sure the programs act equitably, which should be also be done, but making sure the resulting programs equitably distribute resources. In all cases, insurance is the first tranche that households, particularly homeowners, obviously not renters, and renters are disproportionately put at a disadvantage in uh, after a disaster. But looking at those conditions, like the number of renters, et cetera, as a reason for more federal assistance for more federal involvement, should just be part of that original decision-making process. One of the ones, if I may, one of the reasons why we thought that this is also a problem is that there is a belief that the declaration process, because it's not spelled out in very clear criteria, et cetera, that it's politically manipulated. Our analysis basically shows that that's only partially true, but it's not in the way you think it is. I mean, there have been some cases, for example, when President Trump attempted to withhold a declaration from California after the fires, that there's a political machination that's occurring. The reality is, in most cases, presidents are more likely, governors are more likely to ask the president to create a declaration, and presidents are more likely to say yes. So the rate is just growing through the roof because people, like most politicians, like most people, want recovery as much as quickly as possible. So there's more reason why the declarations are made. And that's where we see some ambiguity. So making sure that there's some clarity that would then result in state and local governments, you know, having some skin in the game with regard to keeping um, their communities safer before the disaster happened, and then making sure that there's a fair criteria for the president to sign off on after. Yeah, behind all this, there seems to be the need for more resilience at the local level in the first place. Instead of everything becoming a federal disaster, a state like California has got a lot of resources. It seems like there is that implied idea that states could do more and municipalities could do more to figure out where is damage likely to happen the most and take pre-damage mitigation measures to mitigate what could happen. Amen. 
<laughs> and I think part of the challenge is that most local infrastructure, most infrastructure in this country is actually funded by state and local government, as particularly through through bonding capacity, and doesn't typically come from the federal funding stream. So now that we have some federal funding stream, making sure that there's some skin in the game for state and local governments, but also some, some sticks along with that carrot of money that is associated with this. And this means um, you talked about some high resources, uh, high resource states like California, but there are also lower resource states that are allowing development in the wrong places, the places that are going to be more prone um, to exposure to various hazards. There are places that don't invest in the kind of mitigation that they should be. So making sure that all states are stepping up to the plate is an important thinking in our writing of this blog series. And is your sense that people within FEMA recognize these shortcomings and would like to kind of get more consistent in how they do things and also take into account those factors of, as you say, maybe the effects of climate change or the real need of the community based on its vulnerability? Absolutely. FEMA is statutorily restricted in what they can and cannot do. And this goes back to the Stafford Act that was signed in the 1980s that basically determined all the current, the contemporary emergency management framework, not just for FEMA, primarily for FEMA, but also for the whole federal government. So it really does make a lot of sense for FEMA to want um, more transparent criteria, to want things to be a little more clear so they could do their job more effectively. Dr. Carlos Martin is a fellow at Brookings Metro. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. And invite all your readers to see the blog series. I am me and Carolyn Kuski, our colleagues at EDF. Yes, and we'll post this interview along with a link to that analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.